we will pray and then we will get started. Father, we are grateful um, just as your people to be able to, to call you our God, to know that you are um, our loving Father through your Son who has come to redeem us. And uh, we pray as we look at your word that we would um, just grow in our, our love for you and our um, even ability to walk in your ways uh, by the power of your Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 5. So we're continuing in this section that we started last week. Um, <clears throat> originally, I was going to be doing chapter 6 today. Uh, I didn't finish last week, so I thought about finishing and doing chapter 6. Uh, looked at chapter 6. Chapter 6 has a lot of big stuff in it. So uh, the plan is I'm just going to finish out chapter 5 today, and then uh, Doug will pick up with chapter 6 next week, uh, which is jam-packed with a lot of good stuff in there too. So remind me, um, what's, what begins in chapter 5? Does anyone know what begins in chapter 5? A new... Second. Yeah. So second sermon. So, so Moses is beginning a second sermon. We kind of get that idea from chapter 5, verse 1. And Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel. So the idea is he, he summons them, which has the idea that they must have dispersed. And now he's summoning them back again to do a second speech. Uh, Deuteronomy seems to be made up of three different sermons. Um, not a huge deal, except for to point out that this section that goes from chapter 5 all the way through about chapter 26 is the core of the book, because the core of this section, what he's doing here is you have this new generation standing outside the land, ready to go in pretty soon, and the previous generation had failed, and so there's this um, calling of a commitment, remember the covenant that God has made with you and keep it. Don't be like the previous generation, keep the covenant, right? And so what he's doing in this core section is he's going through the main stipulations of the covenant. Um, remember we talked about how this kind of mirrors um, some other ancient Near East treaties where you'd have the, the, the suzerain, the king, and then he maybe either conquers or rescues a people, and then those people are the vassals and they get certain things, right? And usually there's a rehearsal of kind of, this is our relationship, this is who I am, this is who you people are, and then this is the, the commands I'm giving, and these are your responsibilities, and these are your rights and privileges, right? And so you kind of have a similar thing going on. Now, this is unique in a lot of ways, though. It's not just a one-for-one one because there's a lot of history. Why? Because God is the God of history, and he's been dealing, making a people for himself since really the beginning when he makes Adam and Eve, right? And then, he, and then there's a fall, and then there's kind of a, well, we're going we're gonna to redeem a people, and so then we, we start zooming in on a particular line, and it's going to come through eventually the nation Israel, and so that's kind of what we have going on, and he makes a, a covenant with Israel specifically, which we refer to as the Old Covenant, Right? That's what we mean when we say Old Covenant. There's a, there's a covenant before that. What's the covenant before the what I'm referring to as the Mosaic or Old Covenant? Abrahamic Covenant, right? And so that certainly is going to get fleshed out in the people of Israel that are going to be formed. But he's going to make a specific covenant with those people called the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant. The Abrahamic Covenant, though, is even broader than that because it's going to, Galatians tells us, right? It, it, it overarches even the Mosaic Covenant on into the New Covenant, and God's going to do some more with Israel in the end as well, right? Um, so uh, we have a covenant before Abraham. Does anyone remember what that one is? Noah. Yeah, Noah. We have the, the Noahic covenant, right? Um, which is kind of more of a general uh, to the earth, but also kind of zooming in on Noah and his descendants as well. Um, so anyway, so we could keep going through all the covenants, but just keep that in the back of your mind. So what we're looking at here then is the covenant he makes with Israel, this, this people that he has formed and he's going to bring eventually a savior through. Um, and, and so in this central place, chapters four through 11, he gives like big picture 
um, foundational law type stuff. And so what is he doing? Well, he's starting with the Ten Commandments because that's the core of the Mosaic Covenant. Right? So, so that's the section we're in right now. He's going to keep giving big picture things through the next couple chapters. And then in chapters 12 through 26, he's going to get into some of the detailed laws of this is what it looks like to live in the land as my nation, my people who are a nation, right? So that's kind of the big picture overview. And really all of this is geared towards uh, God's people living in God's place under God's rule, which in many ways is the storyline of the whole Bible. Right? Adam and Eve are God's people living in God's place under God's rule. They rebel against God's rule, so they get kicked out of God's place. Right? And then the whole rest of the storyline is a recapturing of a people for God in God's place under God's rule. You go to the book of Revelation, and what do you have at the end? New heavens and a new earth with God's people in God's place, that new heavens and new earth under God's rule because he's at the center of everything. So you can go look at the last couple chapters of Revelation and see how that nicely, we have this bookend of, of Genesis 1 through, through 3, and then the last three chapters of Revelation bookend the entire Bible. Um, so I encourage you to do that if you've never read those, those two sections side by side. Okay, well, we need to jump back in here and review a couple things about the Ten Commandments, because that's really what we're looking at today. Uh, look at verse 6. So this is the core of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Verse 6, we see here that redemption... Uh, precedes this, um, the laws that are given. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So who initiates the covenant? God does, right? And um, are they going to be redeemed um, by keeping the covenant or has God redeemed them and then he's going to give them the covenant? He's redeemed them and now he's going to give them the law, right? Um, now, they do have to keep this law to stay in his place, just like Adam and Eve had to obey God, Right? because that's part of showing love to God, is that you would obey him. Um, we also see that God has redeemed them out of slavery. This is a time, space, history, relational thing that happens. So notice that, that this is not just some abstract thing that we're given here, right? We're, we're not just given, uh, there's an abstract force um, that has given you these laws. There, this is the personal God who's acted in time, space, and history to redeem this people. Um, there, there's not agnosticism here. Well, we have a bunch of, you know, we're kind of spiritual, but we're, uh, we're not religious or something, right? No, there, there's a real spirituality, a real religiousness to this, a real relationship to this with the one true personal God. Um, so what we find then is in the, the Exodus event, in other words, redemption, when he redeems them out of enslavement, is the gospel placed before the law, even in the Old Testament, let me read this from commentator Craigie. He writes, The law demanded a response of love, not because obedience would somehow accumulate credit in the sight of God, but because the grace of God elicited such a response from man in gratitude. So we see that even in the Old Covenant, that grace is still foundational, right? It's not like, well, there was no grace in the Old Testament covenant, and now we have um, grace in the New. It is different, for sure. It's, it is an Old Covenant. There's something different about it, but it, grace is still permeating it. We have to remember that. Um, I want to real quickly review and maybe add a couple things to the idea of how should we in the New Testament think about the law. Um, I mentioned this last time kind of in passing, but I just want to hit it one more time with um, a few verses that I'll read. So um, when Christ comes, we have a new covenant, right? So New Testament is the same thing as new covenant. You understand that? The word means the same thing, testament, covenant. Um, and so, and this, this is not a... Um, out of the blue, let's just make something up. This was built into the old covenant, right? When you read it, you see the whole point is it's going to show the people that 
they can't fully keep God's ways, they need a new heart to save them, right? They, they need, they, and, and the sacrifices, they're doing it in faith and it is honoring and pleasing to God, but they have to keep doing them. So there's a sense in which that's even clear that this is not the final fullness of forgiveness through sacrifice, right? So, so we have all these things kind of built into it. You have it explicitly mentioned in Ezekiel, Jeremiah, I'm gonna bring a new covenant, right? So this is all built into the old. Um, so we're, what we find in the new, the new Testament, new covenant, is that we are no longer under the old covenant. Uh, Romans 10, 4 for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So when Christ comes, he brings the end of the law. Okay? Um, Hebrews, you don't turn to these. I'm just going to read them. You can look them up later. Hebrews 8, 6 through 9. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the new covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So just so you, you hear it very clearly, New covenant. When Christ comes, he is the mediator of a new covenant, right? In a lot of ways, who, who functioned as the mediator of the old covenant? Does anyone remember? Moses, right? It's through Moses that the covenant is given. Now, Moses, is, is his, his mediation is just a foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do because even though Moses sacrificially leads the people, he can't die for their sins, in fact, he can't even take care of his own sins. He's not going to be allowed to enter the land, physically speaking, because of his own sin, right? Um, okay, so we have a new covenant enacted on better promises. Verse 7, for, it, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now listen to what the fault was. For he finds fault with them when he says. The problem was the people needed a new heart, right? And that's where the whole of redemption is going towards this need for a new heart. And so then he quotes um, from the Old Covenant here, the Old Testament, and he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. And then he goes on and talks more about that. And then in verse 13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. So the Old Covenant, because we have a new covenant, has been rendered obsolete, not in the sense that it's unimportant or that it does not matter for us. It's just the new covenant is here. There's something new about the new covenant, okay? Um, Galatians 3, 19 and 23, both, they, they, it uses this, um, we had this old covenant as serving as a tutor until the time of Christ. What does until mean except for it's here and then when this reality, Christ comes, it's no longer over us, right? Until, right? If I say, I need you to do this until I get back, well, when I get back, that means you can stop. Right? That's what until means. Um, no, it uh, uses the word no longer under as well in that section. Um, Colossians 2, 16 through 17. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question of food or drink. Okay, that's what, what was food or drink a big deal in the old covenant? Yeah, right? Um, now, some people will read that and they'll say, well, yeah, I mean, the dietary laws are over, you know, they're not in, in application anymore. And that's pretty clear, by the way. I mean, Jesus... Um, declares all foods clean very clearly to Peter, uh, the apostle Peter in Acts. Um, okay, but anyway, but keep reading. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So some people will say, right, we're, well, but we're still under the law of the old covenant. But the Sabbath is one of the ten. Right? 
So I guess what I'm saying, when I put all these pieces together, my understanding is we are not under the old covenant. We are not under the Mosaic covenant. Now, before you run off and become antinomians, lawless people, what, is, what are we under in the new covenant? We're under the law of love, the law of Christ. Does the law of love and the law of Christ have no connection to God's moral standards in the old covenant? God's morality has not changed. You understand that? Right? But we are not, we are not a nation state, Israel, under a theocracy law of God given to this people, right? We're, we're under the new covenant. Christ is our mediator, not Moses in the old covenant. Um, so just to be clear here, um, we, we, it's not just do whatever you want and call it love, by the way. Yes, we're under the covenant of love. The, the calling is love. Um, in our culture, we think, oh, well, that's so dangerous. But it, it is because people misinterpret love. They don't define it God's way. Um, but it's, under this, this law, we, we still would obey Christ. If you love me, you will do what? Keep my commandments. John 14, 21. Um, so in the, in the new covenant, what do we have then? We have direct commandments. So we are not lawless because we have direct commandments. Think of all the put off, put on. That's, that's in a sense law. I mean, it's, it's different than, than Mosaic law, but they are commandments. Let's put it that way, right? I mean, the do this, don't do that. You, you have all these things. Um, and really, when we start thinking of all the moral things in the law that were very um, clearly just um, overarching realities, in other words, they weren't specific to the nation, you find those over and over reiterated in the New Covenant, right? Um, and what we also find is Old Testament laws, and I, I give you this in the handout, many of them will transfer directly into how a New Covenant believer would love God and love others. So, thou shalt not murder. It's a pretty direct transfer, right? Because these people are made in the image of God. God is the owner of all life. It's still wrong to murder, right? There's a direct transfer of that law. Um, others contain transcendent principles, which will continue, but they are those, the, the actual law itself, the specific application is transposed, kind of like in music, transposed into the new key of the new covenant. I don't know if I used it in that music term right or not, but some of you music people just don't tell me now, but tell me later. Um, it gets transposed into, into this new key of the new covenant. Um, so, um, so that, I mean, there's, there's a lot of laws that would, that maybe fall into that, that place. Like some of the, um, principles of how, um, an agricultural society are going to function in ways, you know, like things about weights and measures and keeping those things equal. Well, maybe we're not using actual weights and measures, but still the principle of honesty in the way you do work and giving somebody what you tell them, you know, rather than shortchanging them in a business transaction, all that stuff's still going to apply, right? Just because the old, and, and this is helps too, just because the old covenant doesn't specifically say you should not have a Ponzi scheme doesn't mean that that's not ruled out by the covenant of love and all the things Christ tells us and even principles of the old covenant, right? Um, even the sacrificial system, do we go make sacrifices? no. But the principle of Jesus is our once for all sacrifice abides. We still need a sacrifice. The principle still applies, but the reality is, is fulfilled in the fact that Christ was that sacrifice, is that sacrifice. And then how does that then get applied to us? Well, we are like a burnt offering now. Our lives, Romans 12, should be an offering to the Lord in the way we live. You see what I'm saying? So, so the principle still get, gets applied somehow. Um, the Old Testament gives us a lot of examples that we can learn from and a lot of other things. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I, and the reason I'm, I'm belaboring this is I think some people get very confused about this and you can easily fall into some sort of form of legalism where it becomes a, 
we're under a law that we're actually not under. I think that's one form of legalism. Now, the response, again, is, is not antinomianism. It's not just do whatever you want. It's we should start to want what God wants and then have that cut, lived out in our lives. And there are very specific things about what that's going to look like. You don't just make that up on the fly. Okay? Um, so anyway, I think this, will, this, this saves some people from, from getting confused and, and feeling like they're under certain things, whether it's dietary laws, Sabbath laws. Um, even the Sabbath, that's another one. Does that mean there's no Sabbath, like God doesn't care about the principle of work and rest? Or setting aside special time to focus on God and maybe set aside my screens or something? Right? You may, I guess my point is you may apply that differently in your setting, but that's not wrong to have a Sabbath principle. Does that make sense? Um, okay, so does anyone have any questions on that? I know it's kind of a lot, and I, I, I mentioned it last time, I mentioned this time, but I think a lot of people are getting confused these days about this issue. Yeah? Do you find it useful to think about this in terms of what, I guess, reformers sometimes call the tripartite law or three divisions of it, like ceremonial, um, yeah. civil, and moral? Yeah, so the tripartite division of the law, so, so they tend to divide it into moral, civil, ceremonial laws. Um, I think Calvin did that. Um, Luther, not as much. Um, maybe a little bit different in his take. But um, I don't think it's bad to realize that there are laws that seem to fall in these three different categories. But I do think we have to be clear that all of the Mosaic law is fulfilled, including the moral. Because like I just said, the Sabbath is going to be in that moral category, being in the Ten Commandments, right? Um, but I guess what I'm saying is, I think the clearer way to say it is, the new, we're under the... the, the um, the law of Christ, which includes direct commands in the new covenant. And then yes, the fact that some of these old covenant commands, they're going to directly transfer and others are going to be transposed by principle into the new covenant. So it is a little more, well, really both of them are complex because you've got to sit down and think about, you know, which ones transfer and which don't. I think sometimes we want everything. And sometimes I think the reason people are drawn back to Mosaic covenant is they want something very it's clear on everything, and it's simple to figure out in some, to some degree how it's all going to apply, right? Um, although I would say it's actually not. You just have to start trying to figure out how it applies in your culture anyway, right? But um, I think it just offers that just real clear um, line. But the issue was, I think that was a specific time. And I think God did that because it was a nation that was going to represent him, right? And now we have a kingdom of priests living in various nations, various cultures, and they have to live in, in, under Christ's uh, reign in their setting, wherever they're at. I think one of the things that gets forgotten when we start discussing the law and does it apply is that God now deals with us as sons. Yeah. That is not how he dealt with Israel. Yeah. So even though there, there are moral issues we have to take up and there, the law of Christ needs to be obeyed, we're not judged by that. We're forgiven. Yeah. So, and though we may be disciplined by God when we fail to do what he wants us <laughs> to do, we're still treated as sons. We're right. Treated as inmates. Yeah. Yeah, so there's something unique about the New Covenant, right? That there's been uh, adoption in this way. All right. Um, well, let's keep moving. Good questions. I'm sure you, you may have more questions. Um, and uh, if you do, um, ask Doug next week. That'll be good. So the commandments. Um, I won't review all these uh, commandments necessarily. Well, we can review them real quick. So um, I just gave you the whole list here. We left off um, partway through, but give full allegiance to God. That's basically the first one, right? You should, verse seven, you shall have no other gods before me. Exclusive allegiance to God. Uh, number two, 
do not make any images to worship in place of God is basically what it's saying there. Verse eight says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. The idea is you can't, uh, certainly can't make idols. I think commandment number one makes that clear, but this probably reiterates that. It goes a little deeper in that you don't worship the true God through some physical thing that you make right? So statues, whatever it may be, that you think somehow this is going to then get you access to the one true God. That's not the way it works. Our God is uh, invisible, ruling over all, right? Uh, Let's see, number three. I'm going over these fast because we did them last week, so if you want more details, go back and listen to last week. Number three, um, don't use the Lord's name in vain. Verse 11 says, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Uh, So when you think about taking the Lord's name in vain, we remember we don't use it with emptiness and meaninglessness. We we should think about who we're talking about when we talk about God, his character. But we also recognize um, using his name in vain is to attach his name to something and say, God is going to bless this and he's not going to bless it. So uh, I gave the example last time of the false prophets. They would use the Lord's name in vain. The Lord has said, and they would give you the Lord's message. That is a vain use of God's name. He has not said he would bless that. In fact, he said he would do the opposite of that, right? So the modern application is when we have all these people telling us the Lord says this, you have liberal churches. The Lord said the LGBT lifestyle is right and good. He has said the opposite. He, he, he loves those individuals they are made in his image and they need to repent and believe, right? There's a desire that they would be saved. So it's not, it's, there's not a lack of love, but the reality is God is not going to bless us in our sin if we do not repent of it. He blesses repentance. Um, So we could go on and on, but those are some examples. Keep the Sabbath holy. Verse uh, 12, observe the Sabbath to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. So Sabbath is the idea of ceasing, like ceasing from work, normal daily uh, work, and then holy would be set apart. Set apart this day, specifically to remember God and his creating work and his saving work. I think that's what you see Israel being called to do. So again, I, I think that's a good principle for us. I think we, we still are called to meditate on scripture, think about the ways of God, right? Um, even though we're not directly under a Sabbath commandment. Um, we're called to gather together to worship and we do that on Sundays. And the reason we do that on Sunday instead of Saturday is because why? Jesus rose on Sunday, right? So we, we have this new covenant. We have a, um, a new day that we gather to worship him. Let's see, honor your parent, uh, father and mother, Okay, so this is where we left off. Am I right about that? Yeah, I think this is where we left off. <clears throat> so honor your father and mother. Look at verse 16. And here we're, we're going f- a little bit transitioning from the, the first four, which uh, really deal with our connection to God, the fact that we are to love God. And then these go from that to how do we love neighbor, which obviously still includes love for God because God made your neighbor and God told you what to do with your neighbor, right? So um, both those things are still here. But look at verse 16. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Now, if you think back to the second commandment, do you remember, I didn't read this section of the second commandment uh, verses, I think it's verses uh, eight through 10. Look, look back at that real quick. If you look at verses eight through 10, is there um, kind of an application implication that's given related to um parents and children what happens if the, if the parents start making graven images what's likely to happen to the children it's real too. yeah the, it's it's gonna the next generation will likely 
follow that same path, right? And that is going to result in judgment continuing, right? So here we have kind of a uh, kind of a corollary to that. It says, um, let's see, where was I at here? Yeah, reciprocal responsibility here with with these idea that the children are to honor their parents. What's going to happen if the children don't honor their parents and think, you know, well, I should look at what mom and dad are doing when they're following the Lord and pay attention to that. That's not going to end well for them either, right? So, so both sides have a responsibility here. Um, if you look at this, you see there's a call to honor. The idea of honor there is give weightiness to something. It's kind of like the idea of glory, right? There's a weightiness to it rather than a lightness to it. So do not treat your mother and father lightly. Treat them with the proper respect, heaviness, that's, that's deserved. Now, for a child still living under their direct authority, that's going to be obedience to what they say, right? With all, always the caveat is we, number one, obey God. So, right, if the authority is telling me to disobey God, I got to obey God. That caveat's always built into it because God's the maker of everything. But the point is there's supposed to be obedience. I think the way this gets, this doesn't, though, end with when you move out of your parents' house or something, right? Honor is bigger than that. There still should be a weightiness when they give advice, especially if they're of the people of God and they fear God. There should be an extra weightiness to what they're saying. Doesn't mean they, they may not be right all the time. They're, they're human just like you are. So it's not, it's not the same as obey when you become an adult, it, but there still is an honor. Um, what about taking care of parents in their old age? Commanded. Yeah, that's commanded as one way we honor mother and father. And Jesus even gets on to the Pharisees about this. You remember? He says, these people, they make these these vows with their money and what they're going to do with it, and then you won't even let them take their money to go help their aging parents, basically. Um, So we we see this call to honor mother and father to to give a certain weight to it. Um, Again, I do think that that's different than obeying. It's not, you know, your parent tells you to do something when you're an adult and you're just always having to do what they want. And part of that's because what happens when a couple, when someone gets married? We have a new family unit, right? That doesn't mean completely separate. I mean, there's still connection there you, and you're still required to honor. What, what if you're married and you know, you're a woman, you're married and your husband says, well, this is really what we need to do with what God has given us and your parents saying, well, no, this is what you need to do. That would be a problem. So, so the, the line of authority is then husband and wife, right? The husband, head of, head of his family, right? The wife submitting and following there. Um, so I think we see there's some um, wise reasons that this is built into it. Um, let's see, what else do I have to say here? Okay, so I think this is, uh, well, let me read this quote from Craigie real quick. Another comment, the same commentator, he says this, if children did not obey their parents and were rebellious and self-centered, they would not be able to learn about the covenant relationship with God, which had been so central to the lives of their parents. And as a consequence of dishonoring their parents, they would not prosper in the promised land, for they would not know intimately the Lord of the covenant promise. So I, I will say, you know, New Testament application, we obviously, we still are called to honor mother and father. That's still true. Um, thinking about it from a parent's perspective, um, we need to live in ways that show what the relationship with the covenant God looks like so that we would live honorably, right? I mean, parent, children still have to show a certain honor, but it would make sense that we try to live in a way that would be honorable, right? Does that make sense? We clear on that? Um, I think if you have young children, you should expect them to obey. You should expect that they're going to fail to obey, right? So, so don't set a, a standard that's so high that you didn't even keep it as a kid. 
right? If they sin, you're just all of a sudden devastated by that. Well, what kid, except for Jesus, has perfectly obeyed their parents, right? You ought, there ought to be in that. But, but there's also an expectation of they do need to obey, right? We see that in practical terms, right? If, you, if your kid doesn't learn to obey, then you're telling them to stop when you're running through a store. Okay, maybe it's not a big deal, but what if they don't do it when they're running out into a road? We're going to have a big problem, right? They don't stop when you tell them to stop, and then they don't think they have to stop when the police officer tells them to stop. We're going to have a lot of problems, and we do have a lot of problems if we don't parent our children well. God, my point is God has built authority into all of our lives, not just the lives of children, all of us, and we do well to live in line with that wisely, right? Especially as you, as you in other, where, where you're an adult and you're under authority, God expects you to use your mind as you do that. You're not mindless in doing it. You, you do it in a way that pleases God, but you still, you seek to be under authority. Your, your heart is one of, I'm under authority, and this is good for me, even when the authority sometimes gets it wrong. And there's a, there's a way to approach that, um, but we, we won't get into all that now. Uh, let's see. This, uh, this focuses on, this is the first commandment dealing with, directly dealing with horizontal relationships. Uh, why do you think it begins with a family relationship? Is, there, is that, does that just kind of just happen to come up in the 10 laws lottery? Like he was spinning like a bingo number thing and that's the one that came out when he got to this number? Or do you think there's maybe a reason for that? Everything else in society is built off of strong families. Right. So, so what is the foundational relationship and, and um, entity in human civilization? It's the family. This is where you're supposed to learn what it is to follow God. You're supposed to learn certain rules for life, right? Um, how not to do foolish things. Think about Proverbs, teaching a son, avoid all these foolish things. The, where is the place all these things are supposed to be taught? When you get into chapter six, he's gonna tell these parents, this is how you, every, every day with your kids, whether you're at home, whether you're up walking around, you're always talking to them about the things of the Lord. So this is a foundational relationship. The building block is going to be in family. He's going to deal with adultery too here in a minute. So why, why are these here? Because they're foundational to the rest of human society too. If, you can't, if we're not getting it right here, it's not going to go well in the rest of society. And we're kind of, I mean, every society has been this way, has been a big grand experiment. And what does it look like when we mess with the way God's designed the family? We're not the first people to do that, by the way. And sometimes it feels like that because things have gone really bonkers, and they have. But we're not, I mean, ancient Rome had its own issues, right? I mean, every culture has. Um, but, uh, but the point is not to just say, well, everyone's had the issues, so don't care about it. As a Christian, you should care about that, right? And you should live in a way that shows what a, why God has made the family the way he has. And if you're single, you can still show that by your, your relationship to Christ and to the family uh, that is the church, right? You still mirror that and show that. But we ought to show that the family does matter, that the way we design um, social things through government and other things, all that matters. The parents are the primary authority of their kids. That matters. It's, it's not going to be a school board. School boards have important roles. But the parents are responsible. And the government has a responsibility to, to, to acknowledge that and uphold that, not to undermine that. And I think in many, pretty much every culture to some degree has tried to undermine that. Um, and so we just, we need to be faithful in all the areas and all the responsibilities and all the authority God gives us to seek to show that and put that on display because it really is good for all humanity, not just us. And so we want to live in a way that shows that. So honor father and mother. Um, and, and, you know, even when families are bad, let me just point this out too, though. Um, no one is in a cycle that God's mercy can't break through. Right? Because you do hear about people that come from very broken homes and by the mercy of Christ have completely redeemed lives so that they still have terrible things in their past 
that they can look back on where they were, they were significant evil was committed against them and they can respond in a way that shows trust in the Lord. So even when parents get it wrong, we have to recognize that's not beyond God's mercy. And we also have to recognize it won't do for a child to then turn around and point everything back on their parents as if they have no culpability. Even when I'm sinned against, I have responsibility before God to respond the right way. Um, but my but the point is this should offer hope. I think our world is another place where they're hopeless, right? Well, if you had a bad upbringing, there's no hope for you. Well, I've seen a lot of Christians who've had bad upbringings and their life is by God's grace doing well. It doesn't mean they don't have baggage from the past. They do, right? But God is redeeming that. He's working through that. He's then enabling them to minister to other people often through that. Okay, so I know we kind of got into a big, big section there, but I think that's important. The next one is you shall not murder, verse 17. Uh, so this deals with unlawful, unrighteous taking of human life. And it refers to taking life outside of the divinely given parameters of justice. So um, this is not, in other words, anti every time human life might be taken. It is just saying there are parameters of divine justice that apply. And so murdering would be wrong, right? Taking someone's life unlawfully outside of the parameters God has set would be wrong. It is evil. Um, the word here shows us that it's, uh, this is not merely something that would um, prohibit all sorts of death that might occur. Um, it's really dealing with this unlawful idea of taking life. This, by the way, would extend to the issue of abortion. This is taking unborn human life. We're talking location and level of development difference, not different type of being. Right? From conception, we have a human being. Right? When, when a horse is conceived... It's a horse. We're not, we're not wondering what's it going to be when it comes out, right? It's just different location, different size, different level of development, um, but still human. So, um, and hey, this again is a place where even murderers, whether through abortion or through other ways, can be forgiven because God is merciful. So what's the right response when I sin? It's to repent. God, I'm sorry, that was not right. Please forgive me. I need Jesus to give me a new heart so I can obey you. And then we go God's way, by God's grace, by God's strength. Um, so let me talk briefly. Uh, this does not rule out capital punishment or just war. In fact, he's going to deal with capital punishment later in the book of Deuteronomy. He's already dealt with it earlier in the law. Um, he's going to deal with war and about how Israel's to conduct themselves in war. Now, we are not a nation state under God that has, this is the land I'm giving you. I'm expelling all the evil Canaanites, therefore going to take the land. That was very unique to Israel, Right? And, and God was very patient with those Canaanites. He gave them 400 years and they continued in all sorts of evil practices. And so um, God, God has the ability to do that. God has not given us that, but I, I would still argue we have a, um, even a duty for capital punishment and just war. Neither of these things should be taken lightly. We don't, and this, by the way, is not, I'm not making an argument that our legal system is doing all this right. So I, I have not investigated all that. I know there's arguments on both sides. So, but, here, but you need to at least hear this. This call, so you, is this a contradiction? Well, this call really is to respect life that God has made. If we do not have capital punishment, which by the way is sanctioned before the Mosaic Covenant in Genesis 9. So Genesis 9, 6, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. This is really kind of the start of government, essentially. That there's, there's a governmental right responsibility to deal with murderers in a way that will end that murderer's life in the right circumstances, right? 
Um, so when we think about uh, capital punishment, we are recognizing that every human life has dignity and value because why? It is made in the image of God. That's even what that Genesis passage is saying. So to ignore when someone unlawfully, intentionally murders somebody else is to, is to disregard what God has said about human life. It is, to, it is to undignify not just the person who was murdered, but really everyone's life, right? It's, it's to say that, that, that murder is okay, and it's not. And there is a punishment for that, so, such that the, the punishment needs to fit the crime. This isn't just a, see, we've gotten in this idea that all of, um, of uh, um, judicial stuff and things like that would be, I shouldn't say we've gotten to all this, but there's this push to see it as um, it's all about reform. And there is a place for reform, right? We have to be merciful even in judgment when it's being given. That's true. And there should be a desire to see people reform if they're going to jail rather than just come back out and do the same thing. That's not helpful either. Right? But it's not just that. It's also just. Just is giving somebody what they deserve. The victim deserves certain things. Their family deserves certain things. The murderer deserves certain things. And justice is giving both of them what they deserve. That's what justice is. Now, there's a place for mercy. And it takes wisdom, by the way, because, I mean, uh, just saying, hey, we just need capital, capital uh, punishment and then not worrying whether it's applied fairly, equitably, or... Um, even in right situations, that would be a problem too. This has to be taken very seriously. But the point is, I do think this translates from Israel even into uh, our time. Uh, just war, which I would take in our time to be defensive war or perhaps an offensive war that's direct, stopping a direct evil, direct threat to citizens of a nation. If we don't have that, then we basically are opening up for what? all sorts of violence against the citizens of a nation and that, that nation has the job of protect. One of the main jobs of government is to protect its citizens from harm from other nations, right? And so I would say that fitting with the idea that you shall not murder is, well, then governments need to make sure their people aren't just being murdered, right? Okay. Um, let's talk about adultery here real quick. Uh, protect fidelity in marriage. You shall not commit adultery. There are other laws related to sexual sins that are given throughout the uh, rest of the law. Here we're dealing specifically with adultery. Why? Because, again, this is a basic building block of human society. And if we undermine marriage through adultery, we're going to have a big problem. Also, what's the one human relationship that um, gets really, really clearly highlighted as representing the relationship between God and his people? M marriage. That's certainly true in the New Testament. We see it very clearly. But even in the Old Testament... Um, what's it, what does God refer to Israel as whenever they commit um, idolatry? You're adulterous, right? So this horizontal relationship very clearly is intended to picture the vertical relationship that God and his people have. So faithfulness is central to this. That's the point. Okay, do not steal. Uh, society must not, we must not, if it's going to function, we must not have people stealing other people's possessions taking things which do not rightfully belong to you. This would include, obviously, robbery, theft, burglary. It would also include um, scams, scamming people, right? You get those, those emails. I have $3 million I'd like to transfer to, to the United States. I need your help to do it. I'll give you 100000 of it. You know, I'll, th that would be stealing, right? That's what they're trying to do. Um, 
Ponzi schemes, other things like that. Uh, any form of manipulating a person for personal gain can be a form of stealing. Paul even says that sexual immorality can be a form of stealing when he says, do not defraud one another. You're taking something that does not belong to you in fornication and immorality. And so Paul would refer to that as a form of stealing. Uh, kidnapping, selling people into slavery, these would all be examples of stealing, right? Uh, okay, so don't steal. Do not bear false witness. Verse 20, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And so this specifically uh, would deal with process of law. Witness here would probably deal with the idea of going to court against your neighbor. And you need to not bear false witness in these legal cases. It certainly would imply the idea that I do not lie or manipulate even in general personal relationships to get my own way. That's a form of lying here, of false witness, right? I'm testifying something that's not true so that I can get something out of you. Um, human society is not going to work well if we have false witnesses, right? I think, I mean, in a lot of ways, our judicial system was built in a way to try to prevent that as much as possible to make it, you know, I think because it's based on Christian ethics to say that we have to take this thing pretty seriously. There has to be pretty high level of, of proof, which does that mean sometimes people get off? Yeah. God knows though, so they're not ultimately going to get off. But I think we, we've, what we've said is it's, worse to have innocent people being convicted than to have a few people who are going to get off throughout the system. And I think that's probably true, right? Um, but even, even if you don't agree exactly with that assessment, the idea you have to agree with is we can't bear false witness. That is a non-negotiable. Um, applications, children bear false witness all the time. So parents, you need to deal with this. They give you exaggerated things about their sibling to try to get their sibling in trouble, right? My kids don't do this, but maybe your kids do. I've heard, I've heard some kids do this. Um, Sometimes they come and they will tell you what they, what they saw and then you keep pressing and you find out, well, I think this is what they did. And so I think you have to make it clear to your kids because you don't, I mean, what if they take a witness stand one day? They need to be very clear to them. If you did not see it, do not tell me you saw it. You can tell me, I think this happened. Maybe, if, I mean, maybe that's not even a good idea. But if you didn't see it, don't tell me. Now, it is helpful to say, you know, if you, if, you know, Obviously, they need to look out for stranger danger and all that stuff too, right? So it's not, you don't want them to never come to you with concerns. You just want them to know, don't come against your brother, for example, and say, I saw him hit so-and-so, and then come to find out, we didn't see it. You just heard so-and-so start crying, coming out, telling you that brother hit them. Well, now this is hearsay. You've taken another person's, right? And it might be, but let me sort that out. I'm the judge, not you, right? Um, so it's not wrong for them to bring stuff to you, right? Um, yeah, I mean, our goal is to, to make sure we have an open relationship with them where they can communicate. But at the same time, to communicate, uh, false witness is a big deal. So let's just be very clear in what we say. Obviously, the older they get, the easier that is. Younger kids are going to have more and more trouble understanding the difference. But you can start to instruct them from a young age as best you can. And as they get older, they'll understand it better and better. Um, but we do this too. Uh, news outlets bear a lot of false witness. We see that, right? There's always a, a quick to make a judgment on something, come to find out that actually wasn't true person's reputation is tarnished or whatever. Um, social media, um, let's not be those type of people, right? That we are quick to jump on the bandwagon and bear witness to something that we actually don't know about. We don't know the facts about. That's kind of the court of public opinion in some ways. You shall not covet, verse 21, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. In many ways, this is a summary of the Ten Commandments because the issue is at the heart here. It deals with the heart level, what you're wanting and desiring. 
And that really, from that flows theft, murder, adultery, all sorts of other things. It, it's a form of idolatry, Paul says. So in many ways, if I'm not coveting, I'm not going to be committing idolatry. I'm going to worship the one true God as the most valuable person. And if I have him, I have all I need ultimately. I'm not going to use you to get whatever I want because I'm actually now free to love you rather than covet you and your stuff. So we see this is pretty important. So that's the Ten Commandments. Now, briefly, we're going to look at the very end of this and see that they are called to a fear and responsibility when they hear from God. Look at verse 22. They hear God speak. These are the words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain in the midst of fire and cloud and thick darkness with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. So God gives them this law. There's smoke, there's fire. This is a very terrifying environment. Look at verses 23 through 27. And as, as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, notice the word fire is going to appear over and over again. You came near to me and all the heads of your tribes and your elders. Verse 24, you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. So listen, he's going to repeat live and die a couple times here. Verse 25, now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of the fire as we have and still lived? Go near and hear all that the Lord God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear it and do it. The people realize God is holy, 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 and that they are sinful. And so they hear the word of God and they are in awe, and they basically are in awe that they are still alive. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read the Bible, I don't leave that experience thinking, thank you that you let me live after hearing your words. But these are the words of the holy, holy, holy God. When we come to worship, sometimes we take it lightly as if it's no big deal. But the fact that we can come worship God and leave alive is a big deal right? So they are in awe of God, and so they ask for a mediator, and then we see their responsibility here, and, and God's going to respond by giving them a mediator. Look at verse 28. The Lord heard your words when you spoke to me, and the Lord said, I have heard the words of his people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Verse 22 uh, tells us that God, um, God spoke to them. Now verse 28, God heard their words, and he gives them a mediator. And notice in verse 29, he's going to point out here what they need. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always to fear me and to keep all my commandments that it might go well with them and their descendants forever. This is, uh, Jim Hamilton points out that in the Hebrew, this is a question saying, who will give them such a heart as this always? Why? Because they need a new heart to perfectly keep God's way. And at the end of Deuteronomy, verse 29, not the very end, but near the end, he says, it's, it talks about how their heart and their eyes were not given the ability to see and keep all of what God had said. They still had a heart problem. That's their issue. That's why there's going to be a new covenant, okay? And then when you get to Ezekiel, we're told this, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of, uh, sorry, yeah, and give you a heart of flesh. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. That's what they need to do. They're responsible to do what? Do what God said. They need a new heart to be able to do it, ultimately, like at the end of the day, right, fully. And so um, if we look down at the end of this section, listen to what they're called to do, 32. I'm going to skip down to verse 32. 
You shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you. Why? That you may live and that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land you shall possess. So what are they supposed to do? Obey. Do it. Be careful to do it. Don't turn to the right or the left. Stay on the path. Think of Psalm 2. What's the blessed man supposed to do? Walk in God's ways. And so we need to be able to do that too. Um, and realize, he says, don't turn aside. Is, turning aside is generally a slow process for somebody, isn't it? I mean, it can happen quickly in a moment, but it really, the process of fully turning out of God's way is usually incremental. It's one step away, one step away. It's usually going from distraction to other things. Ooh, this is shiny. Let me look at this to indifference to what God says, oh, maybe it's not that big of a deal, to walking in the different path to eventually sitting in the seat of scoffers and scoffing what God says. So the warning to us is you make sure you stay in the way, right? And okay, if you're really a Christian, God's spirit will enable you to do that. You hear that warning and you say, God help me and God's spirit does it as you continue to fill your mind with his word. And then we see the result is that they will live. And um, so that, that's the promises to them. We don't have time to look at this. I encourage you to look at this on your own. Maybe go read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 and following. I think that ties this section together well with all that we've been saying. He's gonna, he talks about the old covenant and how we, we are not under this old covenant. But we've come to a greater covenant and we still have this responsibility. He ends by saying this. He, he, first of all, we, let me just read this last two verses of this section in Hebrews. He says, therefore, after he talks about all this new covenant stuff, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the new covenant equivalent to what we see happening with this old covenant that was given on Sinai. There's not less reverence and awe. There's more reverence and awe. Even as much as we know we have greater assurance of our acceptance because Jesus has come as the better mediator the fullness of all that Moses pictured to actually die in our place to save us from all of our sin, even all of the Ten Commandments that we have violated. Let me pray. God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your rules and your laws which show us that you are holy, holy, holy. Thank you for giving a mediator, for sending Christ to die in our place, to rise again, that we may die with him to sin and rise to new life in you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.